They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk music. I'm 16, but ain't shit sweet. You see me out here in these podcast streets. 16, but ain't shit sweet. You see me out here in these podcast streets. 16th show, here we go. 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 What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, everybody, this week? So glad to be back with you. So glad to be black, gay, and alive for another week. Because sometimes that be hard, but so glad to be here. Welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I am your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. And you can catch up on some of my writing at rnbeing.com if you so choose. Um, I'm also an author. My books are available in print, ebook, and audio for all your reading needs. Um, There's Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. There is my memoir about being a stripper hoe in grad school. That's called All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. And then there's my novel, Who's Your Daddy? About three generations of black gay men looking for love. It's funny. It's moving. It's this, it's that. I think it'd make a perfect Memorial Day read. So check that out. um, If you got yourself a good Kindle, I think it's... um, very reasonably priced on Kindle. Maybe I'll even do a little Memorial um, Day weekend re- um, sale or something because um, I think you will like it and definitely let me know. Uh, and then there's the forthcoming special, A Critical Meditation on the Life and Artistry of Janet Jackson, which is forthcoming. Um, like I said, I'm not going to really talk about it too much until it's actually done and I can Beyonce the situation, but it's just my plans for it have kind of expanded. Um, A lot of business stuff going on behind the scenes, and I will let you know, but it's definitely forthcoming sooner than later. So what's going on this week, y'all? What you listening to? What you watching on TV? What you seeing at the cinema? Um, Let's start with what I'm listening to this week. I'm kind of still listening to some of the stuff I was talking about last week. Still banging that Ari Lennox, um, Shea Butter Baby album. It's so warm. It's organic. It's sexy. It's soulful. Still getting into Tink's diaristic um, homegirl R&B on voicemail. And I'm also playing that... um, I'm still playing that tiny, that tiny record. Um, I fucking love you. I still fucking love it. It's giving you that nouveau Southern soul. I think it's a different sound. I really hope we support her because I want to hear more. Uh, Janae Aiko's Triggered still gets me in my feelings. I'm still mad at exes I ain't even have when I listen to that record. Um, so that's always a good um situation and you know what i've been got, got get really getting into this week and it was weird it's because like one day i woke up singing this song and i was like what song is this and you know i had to give me a good breakfast you know don't skip your breakfast now got myself good breakfast got the brain rolling right and then i realized it was the new monica you and me and i was singing it and you know i didn't even think i played it that much but it's really hot i mean i think the way to think of it is like if prince had produced a song for monica like back in the 80s, like in 86 or 87 or something. And she probably would have been a toddler, but 
just stay with me. But anyway, it's it has that vibe. Um, she even um, name checks Apollonia on the joint. So definitely check that out because, like I said, it's really um, has grown on me. Um, other than that, what else am I liking? I'm liking the new Madonna with Sway Lee. Um, what's it called? Crave? And I've been telling people about Sway Lee that he's a beast. I mean, let's never forget he's the one who came up with, okay, ladies, now let's get in formation. He came up with that on the drive to Coachella with um, the producer Mike Will made it. So he's working with Madonna. And I always like Madonna best when she's the most R&B influenced. Like, the more R&B she is, great. The more she gets kind of Euro and, you know, all this kind of other stuff and all that kind of stuff, that's not the Madonna that I like just because that's not the Madonna I first fell in love with. The Madonna I first fell in love with, Madonna's first album, you know, which was all rooted in R&B. So the closer it is to that, the more I like it. The more it strays, the more I don't. Um, I know she just dropped a single with Quavo called Future, and I gave that one listen um, before I started recording, and it seems it seems like I might like it, but I'm really into, um, you know, the Sway Lee. But what is it called? It is called Crave, isn't it? Well, y'all can look it up, but it's nice. Um, but then I have a question. Has anyone listened to the new Sierra album? Because I was about to listen to it, but then I saw that she had Macklemore on the first damn track. And I just got like, I mean, you know, because she's had issues with getting her career right and everything like that. But I'm just like, who the fuck do you think your audience is that it wants to hear Macklemore on the first damn track, like, it'd be one thing if it was, like, later in the album or something that was kind of a sneak. But, you know, features, that's why people talk about with who, oh, who's your feature on the album? Who's the feature on the album? Because the features on your album sort of give people a sense of what they're going to get in the album, right? And the first thing she's serving us up is Macklemore. I'm like, I'm, that just reads to me like just an artist that really does not know who she is, does not know who listened to her. I mean, I know people listen to Macklemore, but they seek that shit out. They can search that shit out on their own. I don't want you dragging Macklemore into my house, into my eardrums. So I just, I didn't even listen to the album. Now, I know that goes against my music critic background to judge something without listening to it. But like I said, I just felt like the Macklemore shit just said this album is not for me. And it's just a shame that Sierra just can't seem to get it together because I actually saw her on her last tour and she was really, really good. It was much better. I mean, the vocals were on point, the dancing, she got herself a little band, she got herself a little background dance. I mean, it was really a nice little um, production. But even then, that was for that album called Jackie, which I thought was a dumb album cover. It's like, you need to be out here still trying to keep your name relevant. We don't need to be learning your mama's name. We still trying to keep Sierra relevant. Why are you telling us about your mama? So just so many things just seem to be not falling in place with her. So like I said, she's beautiful. I like seeing her on the red carpets, everything like that. But me and her music, I think, um, may have just had to break up permanently because I just can't get into um, where she seems to be going. Um, now this is kind of breaking news because I'm recording this at what, 2 a.m. as usual. And at midnight, um, the Megan the Stallion's album Fever dropped. And it's hot. That delayed me from even getting on the mic because I was just listening to that. And I mean, it's different. Like I love the City Girls. 
But this is like grown-ass woman sex talk. I mean, she's not just having fun. She seems real serious about her shit. I've already gotten favorite songs. The song called Ratchet is already my cut. And then also she just be spitting. Like, she just really just be spitting these lyrics. Like, so far my favorite um, favorite um, bars are, I don't even chase liquor. Why would I chase a nigga? He said you, he said you should be nicer. Well, your dick should be bigger. I fucked that all up, but still, it's a hot verse. Um, and this is definitely going to be the Memorial Day weekend album. So start learning the lyrics now. Get your delivery better down than I did. And so you won't seem late to the party. So that's my breaking news um, for the week. I should have some kind of like music or something like that. Now on TV, what have I been watching? I discovered that, I didn't discover shit, it was just on, but I watched um, that show Shrill on Hulu that stars um, A.D. Bryant from Saturday Night Live, and I really thought it was really funny, like it really got me in, you know, in. like I said, almost any TV show, I think you have to give three episodes, I've said it a million times, but the first episode is the pilot setting things up, that's not going to really give you all you need because you're just getting to know folks you're just getting to know the setup the second episode they're trying to bridge from the pilot stuff into what's going to keep the show going week after week after week after week so it's really not until the third show that you done got to know the people you feel like the writers are in a groove of where they're going and everything so I definitely felt that about this show but I, I thought it was really funny it's kind of similar to girls um which despite all of its problems I really love that show when that both characters, you know, they're dealing with weight issues, they want to be writers, um, and they're more than a bit self-involved. But Shrill just has a lighter, kind of warmer feel. And contrary to girls, it definitely has a much more multicultural cast. So um, it's interesting. It, you know, has a lot to do with writing and breaking into the business and stuff. So I like it. I think it's worth checking out. And you know you get Hulu free with Spotify now, right? You just have to Google how to hook it up. But um, yeah, you get if you got yourself that $9.99 Spotify subscription, you definitely um, get Hulu. So that's something to check out. And Another thing, now this is a must watch. This is just one of those things. I mean, you know, this stuff you watch, laugh, ha, 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 ha. But this is something that I think will really kind of feed your soul, feed your, your creativity, kind of help you get through certain things. And that's, um, especially if you're a creative or just if you're doing, I mean, sometimes you're just doing something that's different from what the other people around you are trying to do. I mean, even if it's something like, you know, maybe you're a first generation college student and you know, the situation where, like, people support you, but they don't really know how to support you because they really ain't never been there. Um, I think as black people, we find ourselves in a lot of situations like that. You know, um, like in my case, the reason I'm here, the reason I'm able to do what I do is because of people that took very safe government jobs and they were able to, you know, work that money and work incrementally up and make, a, you know, get do a little bit better, do a little bit better each year and everything like that. And that's why I'm here and able to do a podcast and be writing my books and everything like that is because of the choices that it's because of those relatively safe choices that they made. That's the foundation for me to kind of do more creative things. And it's like, why I appreciate um, all that they've done it's like a lot of times they can't understand why I do what I do just because they've never been in that space. So a lot of times you just need, um, you know, some sort of 
guidance, support, just something from people that know exactly what you're going through. So this is um, this is a Netflix special. It's by Brene Brown, and it's called The Call to Courage. And it's just so great because, you know, she's written a number of books. She's been on Oprah Super Soul Sunday, you know, and I've read all her books and everything like that. But the great thing about the Netflix special is just like, you don't have to read shit. You don't have to do it. You know, you just put it on and you let it play and you just get the message in a condensed, you know, like hour or something like that and go on about your way. And it's definitely something I think I'm going to watch over. I've already watched it like two or three times. But she talks about how our create our vulnerability is key to our creativity. Like she says, vulnerability is not about winning. It's about losing. Um, I fucked up. I'm fucking everything up. Done fucked up. Megan the Stallion. Now I'm fucking up Renee Brown. Anyway, I repeat, um, vulnerability is not about winning. It's not about losing. It's having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. I'm like, ain't that right? Because that is really the way I feel every time I start to write something, even every time I get on this podcast. Like, you, the the journey and the courage is in the showing up because you don't know when you start to write something, you could spend two years on something. I have spent two years on something that has not come out the way that I wanted it to come out. But like I showed up again the next time to work on something else, to work on something else. And that's how you, um, that's how you end up with a creative life. That's how you end up going through that breakthrough of, um, you know, finding something that finally breaks through or just sometimes you do things that are a little bit ahead of their time and sometimes maybe you put something aside and then three years later, it makes more sense. It makes more sense creatively or it makes more sense in the marketplace. So these are all like just the stuff that we have to go through as creative people. And it's just really important to realize that what we do that's most important is show up. Because if you keep showing up just using lessons from my life, if you keep showing up, you keep doing something, you are, something's going to hit, something's going to hit. And, but like it, the thing that really gets people down so much, and I've seen so many people like fellow authors have this happen, is like people put so much into like one project. They're like, oh, I'm going to write this book. It's going to be a bestseller. Then I'm going to be doing this. Then I'm going to be doing that. And this is going to lead me to Hollywood. And I'm going to write my screenplays. But then I'm also going to be on a speaking tour and blah, 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 blah. Well, what happens if that don't happen? You know what I mean? Because a lot of times that doesn't happen. You can vision board it to death. And Lord knows I I have. But like sometimes shit just does not work out the way that you plan for it to work out. The courage is then getting back up and trying something else. And not to get lost in the fact of that one thing not working out. Um, Because, and that's really important. That's another thing she emphasizes. Emphasizes. Hold on, y'all. I need some Red Bull. My mouth is already getting dry. But that's another thing she emphasizes in the um, special is that embracing failure because failure is just simply a part of the creative process. She says, and let me try not to fuck this up. She says, You're going to know failure if you're brave with your life. Ain't that the damn truth? Because, again, that's. The showing up without having the control. If you're brave and you're constantly going after new things, if you're um, blazing new trails, 
at some point you are going to fall down. But I think what is better, sometimes we get so caught up in, you know, and I think visualizing things is so important. I think it's so important to have your goals, write them down, be like being Mary Jane about them, put them all over your house and everything like that. That is so important. But you also have to have a level of detachment from that and and understand that maybe a dream is going to come another way that you didn't necessarily intend. So many people see that if the dream does not come in looking exactly like what they thought, they can't even see the other opportunities that are there. And then I thought about Beyonce. Yeah, I was like, you know, we're like Beyonce stays winning. You don't see Beyonce fail. So how does this apply? You know, that you're always going to know failure if you're brave to your life because Beyonce's brave as shit. You know, standing up on Coachella doing a tribute to HBCUs, that's some fucking brave ass shit, right? And so, so I was like, so how do I reconcile this with Beyonce? But then I thought back to that homecoming special and it's like, you see her rehearsal process. It's like Beyonce seems like she plans failure into her entire process. She plans that's why she rehearses so long and everything like that so Beyonce has failed plenty of times before we see her on the stage where then she's ready to show out and to win and to do the thing so that was kind of a lesson for me just thinking it all through and just thinking that like building if you really want to succeed you kind of have to give yourself enough time to build some degree of failure into the process if you're so tight on putting stuff out putting stuff out putting stuff out then you might be sacrificing your creativity because you might not be taking the risks that would push that work to the new level because you didn't really have the time to experiment and fail. So I think that's something to think about too. It's just when you're thinking about planning a project and everything, just go ahead and incorporate the failure into the process and um, that will give you the freedom to create and to think bigger. And I know with, with myself, and I think this is something that comes with experience. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of your career, you just have to kind of have faith. You have to have a vision of what you want to do with your art, how, what you want it to look like, what you want it to feel like, what you want it to sound like. And then you keep chasing that vision. But, you know, for me now, every time I sit down to write something, I have never written that particular thing before. It's some new shit. So I don't fucking know exactly what's going on and everything. I'm making it up as I go. It's really no different um, in terms of facing the blank page as it was when I faced a blank page when I was first becoming a writer. But what you do get over time, and thank God you get it, is that I can say to myself now, okay, well, like, you haven't written this book but you've written three other books. You know that you have started at a place and you've somehow gotten to the finish line and people have liked it and you've been pleased with it and everything like that. So you kind of have to go on that faith of what you've accomplished in the past. And, you know, I think that doesn't even have to be the same within the same lane. For example, it doesn't have to be like you've written this book so that you've written a number of books, so therefore you can write this next book. I think a lot of those times when we face a challenge that we haven't, um, face before, just think of some other shit that you've done where you didn't know the outcome or anything like that and that you've overcome that. 
We all have those experiences going back to childhood or whatever. Learn to tie your shoes, learn whatever. That's what life is, a series of, you know, not knowing how to do shit and then learning how to do the shit and then you've mastered the shit. That's life. That's learning, right? So I think if you are trying something brand, brand new, you have to kind of connect to the times, the other times that you tried something new and succeeded because everything was new to you at some point. Because that's the whole, like I said, that's the whole shit. You come out, you don't know shit, um, you know, and hopefully by the time you, they put you in the grave, you've learned a few things. So um, I thought that was great. And then another thing that was really, really special for me in the um, program is that she talks about how to deal with the haters that will, will inevitably come out whenever you dare put something in the world. Because so many people are sitting back not fulfilling their dreams. So how dare somebody, you know do their, put their dream out there or fulfill their dream or whatever, you know, the people that are just sitting back, not doing anything, not being brave with their lives, um, they're just ready to pounce, you know, cause it's easy to be, you can be, you might not be brave with your life, but you could be brave as fuck with your Twitter fingers. You know what I mean? You can be brave as fuck in an Instagram comment. So she says, you cannot take criticism or feedback from people who are not being brave with their lives. I will say that again. You cannot take criticism or feedback from people who are not being brave with their lives. I think that, like I said, that goes for the people who might show up on Twitter. That goes for that. That might go for the people in your life. That might go for your best friend. Do you know what I'm saying? That might go for people that have supported you so much at a to a certain point of in your career and you don't understand why they're acting a little funny acting like i said i've said this before i know you know people in your life most people in your life there are if you are lucky enough to have one or two people in your life that just want you to just soar soar so like they just want to be there watching the rocket soar higher and higher and higher and higher without any sort of you know, trying to grab a hold of the rocket or trying to like, you know, have a string onto the rocket holding you down or like driving you crazy, giving you directions of where to go with your rocket. But they just want to sit and watch your rocket fly and just bath in the light of, you know, your rocket. Those people are the indispensable people. Hold on to those people because most people just are not like that. Most people are comfortable with you getting to a certain point, but at a certain point, your success, or just, it doesn't even have to be actual success, it could just be your bravery. It could just be your bravery to do something that's unknown that will begin to threaten them because they're not doing something that's um, brave. They're not going out on a limb. They're taking making the safe choice. So that's why sometimes people that you can feel like are even more successful than you are and you're like why is this person hating on me or acting like this why is this person giving me these weird vibes this person you know has this deal or that deal well it's because what you're doing is something independent something brave something different and they don't have the courage to do that therefore they have to kind of tamper your dream or kind of try to um you know make it seem like you're doing less than what you're doing, even though you're not hating on them, it's like you're congratulating them, but you just want to take things in a different vision and they, they can't see it. And they're the, and them not seeing it makes them, you know, kind of throw a little subtle hate on it. So all of those things are just things that come up within the, um, 
in the program that I just think are really, really helpful. And it's one of those things that you can all, you can never be reminded too much of those things. And lastly, this is some advice that she gives to her young son when he was deciding whether or not to um, try something risky for an art project. It's like his grade was kind of iffy. And like if he did this project, well, he could up his grade, but he kind of wanted to take a risk with it. And so she told him, effort in taking a chance don't always pay off, but I don't see anything that pays off without effort in taking a chance. And that, that, like I said, that's just so true. It's like, you can try, you can try and try and risk something. You may fall in your face at some point if you do it enough times and you do it in enough challenging ways, you will fall the fuck on your face. But you will never accomplish the greatness that is in you if you do not put out that effort and take that chance. So... You know, that's something I live by, and um, I think that it's um, it's really been helpful for me as a creative, so I hope that other people will find that. And not, like I said, not even creative, whatever you're doing in your life, whatever you're doing, taking a risk, I mean, whatever you're doing, I think you'll find it helpful. So that's Brene Brown's The um, Call to Courage, and I say watch it, and just keep it on your my list, you know, because it's one of those things that when you're feeling down, you're feeling like you're falling behind or whatever— it's a great thing to just watch like an hour long, might not even be that long, just to keep, you know, to give you back that perspective, just to keep going. So um, that is a Craig Recommends for the week. I don't know why my, my mouth's so dry. Let me drink some more of the Red Bull. Hold on. Now, as for books, I don't know if y'all know um, Damon Young of Very Smart Brothers. I didn't know him all that well. Now, I was familiar with Very Smart Brothers. He's like, you know, occasionally somebody would send me a link or I would run across something on Twitter, one of their articles that was really funny and everything like that. So, you know, it wasn't like I was a stan or anything like that. It was just kind of familiar. So I bought his book. Um, I don't really know why, except I support black books. You should, too. And the book is called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. It's a book of, like, memoiristic essays about coming to adulthood, which you say, well, what the fuck isn't all these, what kind of memoir shit isn't about that? And why should I buy this book? And he even admits it very early on. He says, I know my story isn't unique and that there are other similar works that explore many of the same themes. So I was kind of like, well, what the fuck am I? But, you know, I kept going with it. And there are two things that I think um, really make the book work. And work and um, well worth your time. First of all, it's black, black, and it's funny as fuck. I mean, he discusses stuff like, he discusses topics like which Kool-Aid flavors go better with chicken or fish. And then another part that kind of he keeps going back to, he kind of talks about the etiquette at black barbershops, which he calls, um, he says, which next to Patti LaBelle's kitchen and Al Sharpton's activator drawer may be the single blackest place on earth. And then he talks about people, you know, I don't know if, I mean, I guess I I, say, I, I don't know. I, I guess everybody's particular about their hair, but it's kind of like just that awkwardness when you have somebody you have a relationship with doing your hair for a long period of time or something like that. And you just, they just keep fucking your shit up and you're just like, okay, I like this person. I'm going to go back and give another, more, you know, do the George Michael one more try, one more try, one more try. I'm going to try it. 
And then they just um, keep fucking your shit up. And like he's talking about how in those situations, there is no easy way to fucking break up with your barber. Like it's easier to break up with almost any other relationship in your life except with somebody like your barber. You know, you can tell a significant other, you know, all sorts of things. Even if you're having problems with your family, you can say certain shit. But like it's just awkward so he writes um i'm confident that a millennium from now someone will have invented a good way of breaking up with a barber i'm even optimistic that this discovery might actually happen within the next 500 years now though unless the breakup is due to you moving to a different city or balding a bit earlier than you'd like there's no it's not you it's me you're not leaving to find yourself or because you're not ready for something so serious. You're not going to be pressed for time because you're starting a new job or going to grad school. You won't be better as friends, and you won't introduce them to a friend that they'd be more compatible with. You're not going to request an open relationship or the chance to see other people, and you will definitely never tell a barber that you're ending things because you don't deserve them and they need somebody better, someone better, someone who will appreciate them better than you could. Because you still need to mature and maybe one day catch up to them. There's just no way of euphemizing the fact that you're getting a new barber because you just believe the new barber is better. So instead of having that conversation with them, you ghost. I know I've ghosted on quite a few barbers in my time, especially when you move to a new location. Like I know when, as Miami, when I moved to Miami, like, um, you know, I went to one person and stuff, and I went, you know, and I liked him and everything like that. But then I saw somebody else's cut, and I was like, oh, who cuts your hair? Then I started going to this person, and now, like, this person, I ain't never say shit to the old person. But then one time I was, I was, um, fucked up because my new guy was like on a vacation or something like that. So then I, I needed my hair cut, like, with the quickness. So then I had to go to the, other guy you know do the whole oh how, how you been oh i haven't seen you around oh yeah you know i've been busy and been i just saw that bullshit meanwhile my heart palpitating sweat stains under my arms and all this kind of stuff wonder if he's gonna fuck up my hair because he knows i've been seeing other people but that's just life as a black man and um that's one of those things that he captures very well um he also this is i thought was pretty funny he offers petty ways of of um, dreaming revenge on a nemesis. He talks about, um, this is just somebody from high school, and he says, I hope he doesn't get as many happy birthday wishes on his Facebook wall this year as he assumed he would, and I hope he gets upset that he cares enough about a Facebook birthday wish to get upset. I hope that every time he goes to the Popeye's drive-thru at 9.53 p.m., rushing to get there just before it closes at 10, they tell him that they just ran out of chicken two minutes ago. (laughs) So, um, and he's also funny, and this is kind of like the second thing. I mean, he's also funny when talking about really serious topics. Um, I mean, not serious, not like, you know, World War Three, but just serious topics, you know, within the community, serious topics about race and um, sort of navigating race and respectability politics and all that kind of stuff. So he spends a long time talking about the politics of saying nigga and um Especially when he talks about the fact of sometimes people say, oh, well, you shouldn't say nigga because if you say nigga, white people are going to want to say nigga. So just don't say nigga. And you're like, well, why can't I say nigga? Because I say nigga. Like, 
you know, it's just one of those weird, um, I, I think it's also like a generational thing. I just find myself having like weird, like nigga conversations with family members that like I grew up with them saying nigga, but now all of a sudden they don't say nigga. And so now nigga is a thing. And anyway, he says, nigga is, nigga is apparently so singularly contagious that white people in the vicinity of it are possessed with an uncontrollable compulsion to use it too. We, the blacks who push nigga on unsuspecting whites like crack cocaine and properly seasoned chicken breasts, must curtail its use before these soft pedal motherfuckers overdose. Like, I, you know, I guess I'm just, I'm definitely at the age now where, you know, they call it your fucking 50s, but I'm at the age now that I just feel like my, I don't know if my code switching thing is broke. I don't know if I just don't, like, did I not replace the battery or something? But I just feel like more, the older I get, like there's just no, there's no, like my thought voice, the the way that I think in my head, the way that I talk to myself, nigga, you know, you need to do this nigga. And like, nigga, did you pick up that dog food? Cause that nigga's going to be pissed if he wakes up in the morning and you don't have the food for him. Like just the way that I think in my head is more and more just the way that I talk because who, what, why am I changing who I am to, you know, to measure up to some respectability politics that's not going to save me at the end of the day anyway? Like some of y'all know about this issue I had with an asshole cop um, just earlier this week where he was giving me the business. And like, he would, that, me not, me saying nigga or not saying nigga is not going to change my um circumstances if a cop is behind, if a cop is you know fucking with me and wants to go off so you know he's and, and he kind of talks about that too he talks about the um ridiculousness of the respectability politics that suggests that race would be improved if black folks could only stop saying nigga he says this thought exists in the same strain of respectability politics that bleeds into blacklist blackness like a staph infection cracking skin corroding spleens and convincing niggas to wear suits to target it tells us that our salvation is found in self-induced and performative filtering of our own behavior maybe if we just stop listening to migos and stop watching love and hip-hop so that's that's why you know just sometimes and i think this is the strength of the book you know he writes of course other people have said these things before, but sometimes, you know, the way people say them um, just helps really hit the point home. And I think that that's um, Damon Young's real strength throughout this book. Um, and the reason for the fail, the reason why the respectability politics doesn't work, and just like I said, it's just because we're living under a system of white supremacy, whether we like it or not, whether we say nigga or not. And, you know, he sums this up clearly when he writes, whiteness is a life-ruining business. And nigger life ruining is its primary revenue stream. And this is especially, it's especially moving um, and it's kind of infuriating when he discusses this with relationship to his mother's death from cancer. He calls this essay, um, Living While Black Killed My Mom. She was a lifelong smoker and he writes, Maybe she wouldn't have developed an addiction to nicotine. I'm aware that white people are also susceptible to addiction. To addiction, but they're not as susceptible. Their world isn't as stress-inducing. The myriad things to get addicted to aren't as easily found where they live. 
aren't as prominently advertised, and the resources to overcome those sicknesses aren't as hard to find. And when addiction does cripple white communities, as it has with the opioid epidemic, they don't get America's fire and fury, as black neighborhoods devastated by crack did. They get pillows and 23-minute-long nightline profiles. It's not so much that blacks are thought to be subhuman, although that belief festers too. It's that the humanity of whites is the only humanity that matters. What can you say, you know? Um, and then what's really poignant is later in the book, he, he um, has a child, he has a daughter, and he worries about raising a daughter in a climate where he says, you know, if you're black, America adds a decade of age, a vat of sass, a coating of Kevlar to your skin because, of course, niggers don't feel any pain. If you're poor and black, America acts like you emerged from the womb 27 years old with four kids, five predictive felonies, and a lit Newport already between your lips. White people get to be babies, and they still get to be babies when they're adults. Poor black people are born Avon Barksdale. So what he's struggling with with his daughter is teaching her about the history of black of the history of white supremacy and black resistance to the white white supremacy but at the same time he also wants to give her that spirit that she could do anything and it's just the paradoxical of like yes there's this system that is just completely designed to keep you down and everybody who looks like you down but the world is yours like Nas said you know so it's the way that Damon um kind of articulates these such a paradox um, with this and other things in the book and the funny and smart way that he does it, that's really what makes this particular book special. And it definitely makes it worth the read. I give, give it my highest recommendation. So definitely check out Damon Young's What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Um, now on a side note, um, another thing about his book that stuck out to me is when he's talking about the genesis of the book and he writes... I wrote this book because I believe right now that its existence means that instead of the events of my life occurring as random and haphazard incidents with no purpose, they're distinct pieces of a puzzle. And I don't know how many people out there, um, you know, fellow memoirists like myself, or even interested in writing a memoir for publication or just for yourself, but there's actually been research done to show that doing that very thing that he talks about just by just the act of writing down the events of your life and putting some kind of order to them, that that's actually therapeutic because um, what's dangerous is when people start to think that they're like, you know, people think, oh, what have I done? Oh, what does my life add up to? You know, asking the um, George Bailey, it's a wonderful life question. Like, what, what if I wasn't even here? Like, what the fuck? You know? And writing those things down can actually um, help you. So just a little bit, a little, um, you know, self-care advice from Craig um, this week. And so that's all I have for you this week. I really appreciate you riding with me. And until next week, be cool, be kind, be creative. And you know how it is in the words of my fave. Be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. Love y'all. Bye.